6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 11 through 13. So we have one more chapter. Now we're going to talk about Jehoahaz's evil reign in all Israel. Now we're going to shift to the northern kingdom. We've been in the southern kingdom. Back to the northern kingdom, which means it can't be good news. <laughs> in the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. By the way, I encourage you with a notebook and stuff to try to keep, keep a little chart on a scratch pad of who reported to who so you can keep some of the names. The, the northern kingdom is a dismal story anyway, but it's also one dynasty after another. It's not like the house of Judah, which is uh, house of David, which is just one dynasty, of course. But anyways, it may be helpful to try to keep those straight, recognizing the, the text sometimes renders the name slightly different in the transliteration. But anyway, moving on, verse 2. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. No surprise. All the kings in the north seem to do that. And he followed the sins of Jeroboam. That was the founder of the whole bunch the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. And he departed not therefrom. This guy's bad news. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. No surprise there. And he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria, into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. That may sound strange, but you see, one, one replaced the other is the point. Um, see, they, they, uh, as sort of a discipline. Of the, of the nation, of the house of Israel, for a disobedience against Mosaic law, God allowed the Arameans, or the Syrians, if you will, to dominate her. And, uh, so, Jehoahaz reigned during the last years of Haziel's ministration, the early years of his son, Ben Hadid III. That's what's going on in, in, uh, in verse 3. And Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because of the king of Syria oppressed him. So even though they are under God's discipline, God still hearkened to him, because God's trying to send him a message too. See, and the Lord gave Israel a Savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel a sin, but walked therein. And there remained the grove, that's the Ashtaroth, that these phallic symbols, this, this pagan worship, uh, also in Samaria. So God is gracious, sends them a relief, if you will, and uh, apparently it was uh, probably King adad of Assyria. See, the Assyrian, the, the, the Arameans, or Syrians as we would call them, also had enemies further east. The Assyrian Empire is on the rise. And so King adad is is now starting to harass the Arameans or the Syrians, so they don't have the time or the trouble to harass Israel. So God's taking the pressure off Israel by... Using this. Now, the Assyrians are going to rise to power. We're talking here about 783 BC. By the time you get another 50 or 60 years, Assyria is going to be the mechanism by which the whole northern kingdom will be taken and wiped out. But that's for, that's later. Uh, King uh, Adidneri III of Assyria, he fought against Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Media, Edom, and Egypt and defeated it in 803 BC. So 
So the, obviously the Arameans, or the Syrians as we would call them, uh, turned their attention from attacking Israel to defending themselves against the Assyrians. So Israel escaped Aram's power and, and uh, people were able to return to their homes. That's what I mean. You dwelt in tents, so they can return to their homes. That's an expression for that. And uh, But they still had to, but they had to pay a tribute to Assyria. But on the other hand, they were free from Aram's attacks. So, but But they still don't learn from this. The answer to prayer, which they got, did not result in the people repenting of their idolatry. When God answers your prayer, does that change your behavior? Does that cause you to examine your life for sin? When God so graciously answers prayer, which He does so often, He always blows our mind. See, here they got a tremendous answer to prayer, a national answer to prayer, and nevertheless they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel to sin, but walked therein. There remained these phallic groves and so on. Neither did he leave the people... Jehoaz, but fifty horsemen, ten chariots, ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by thrashing. In other words, Jehoaz's army is decimated by the Syrians, or the Arameans, and uh, dust at thrashing time, it means they were just blown away. We would say they were decimated or never seen again. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz are they, uh, and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his stead. Now, Joash or Jehoash is, uh, now we're speaking of the northern kingdom guy here, and so we're going to talk about his evil reign in Israel. We've got, the chapter isn't over, but we've got a sort of a different topic, a different reign going on here. He's the third king of the Jehu's dynasty to rule in Israel. In the thirty and seventh year of Joash, the king of Judah began Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Boy, there is that echo, there is that refrain. No learning is taking place. Learning is defined as the modification of behavior. They're not changing their ways. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's the first guy. He's the guy who set this up in the first place. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin. But he, this current king, walked therein. And the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did, and his might, wherewith he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? You know, this this this, this familiar refrain is kind of early <laughs> in his career here. Um, these words about Joash are repeated almost verbatim in the history of Amaziah of Judah in chapter 14. Uh, Joash's war against Amaziah is described by the writer as part of the Judean reigns king in chapter 14, forthcoming. In other words, the next chapter is going to deal with some of this. And, uh, and Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Jeroboam II will succeed Joash, but the son actually began reigning as co-regent 11 years before his father's death. And Jeroboam II will be uh, uh, the guy that will lead them to some material prosperity uh, so they think it's the best of times, but Hosea, the uh, primary ministry from chapters 4 through 14, will uh, indict the days of Jeroboam II. Because they're starting to come you know, to a climax there. But anyway, uh, verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. So Elisha's got terminal illness here. And Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face. 
You know, this is interesting. He, he, he reveres Elisha. How can you? With all the incredible things, events of his life, and yet he, he, he weeps, and yet he doesn't listen. He doesn't follow his advice. So Joash the king of Israel came down to him, wept over his face, and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. He's using military terminology. He's, he's speaking of him as, as um, the, the, the uh, uh, real defense and power of Israel against all her adversaries. Not the king, not his armies, Elisha. So he has insights. You know, it's disturbing to realize having insights is not enough. Here's a king who understood, apparently. He understands that Elisha speaks for the Lord, that Elisha is, is the real power, uh, real uh, resource to the nation, and yet they don't do what he is said to do. And now comes a very interesting anecdotal example. Elisha's on his deathbed, but he's got one last thing to do with Joash, the king of Israel. They're obviously good friends. Joash is weeping over the fact that Elijah is terminally ill. In verse 15, Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. Gee, that's interesting. What's going on here? Obviously, Elisha is going to try to make a point here. See, taking his bones in the hands, the king was symbolically becoming an agent of God's power. And Elisha put his own hands on Joe and Joash's hands to symbolize that the power the king would exert came from the Lord through his prophet. That's what's sort of it's, a, it's trying to communicate here. Verse 17. And he said, Open the window eastward. Eastward, by the way, was the direction of their enemies, the Arameans or the you know, Syrians, if you, as we might call them. Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. He said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. He said, take the arrows. And he took them. He said, the king of Israel, smite the ground. He smote thrice and stayed. By the way, many people sort of visualize this. See, he instructed the king to take the arrows that remained and shoot them at the ground. Not just hit the ground. Most people he smite the ground. No, shoot, shoot, uh, shoot the arrows at the ground. It was to shoot these uh, as he did the first one, like he did at the window, first to the ground. So the king fired off three of them. Okay, take the arrows. He took them. He said to the king of Israel, "Smite upon the ground." So he smote thrice and stayed. Now he apparently had some left over. He just stopped after three. Well, the man of God was angry at him. Why was the man of God angry at him? The man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then thou had smitten Syria till thou had consumed it. Whereas now, thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Is this a weird story or what? In other words, Apparently, what Elijah told him to do is you know, fire, the, fire the remaining ones in the ground. He did three of them. I don't know what he's thinking. Enough of the silly game. Then he finds out, you see, what, what this is in effect a demonstration of unbelief. 
See, the king was manifesting failure to trust God to give him as many victories as there were arrows. Joash understood that shooting the first arrow symbolized because Elisha had explained it. By letting the king shoot more arrows, God was inviting him through Elisha to claim as many victories as he had arrows. And God assured him that he would have victory by divine enablement. See, but Joash apparently felt that God could not or would not do as much for him as Elijah had implied. This unbelief explains why Elisha was so angry. Joash failed to trust God even though he knew what God had promised. Does that pinch us a little bit? Do we know what God has promised us? Do we believe it? Do we appropriate it to ourselves? Is it just an intellectual assent or do we really act upon it? That's the question. The prophet told the king that he had shot more, if he'd shot more arrows, God would have honored the faith and given him more additional victories. As it was, he would win, he would win only now three victories. And we find that exactly what happens in verse 25 as we get there. Well, Elijah dies and they buried him and the, and the bands of the Moabites and, oh, this is another one of these weird stories. And the bands, the, the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming end of the year. These are robbers. These are brigands, if you will. It came to pass as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, these Moabites apparently, and they cast the man they were burying into the sepulcher of Elisha. You know, they want to get out of there because these brigands are coming. Well, when the man was let down into this cave, see, Elisha was apparently buried in a cave or whatever. When the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, guess what happened? He revived and stood up on his feet. Think that would get people's attention? <laughs> but Haziel, the king of Assyria, pressed Israel. Oops, did, I, did I go backwards here? No, that's right. Okay. Uh, let me back up before I leave, uh, leave this. We want to talk a little bit more about this. Um, being surprised by these Moabite raiders, raiders, of course, these pallbearers uh, removed the stone in front of Elisha's tomb and threw the corpse in and so forth and then retreated. But obviously... Uh, the men who placed the body in the tomb uh, observed this. And so this story, of course, gets spread all over town. But it's intended to reach the ears of Joash, because that probably for whom the miracle was intended, a sign of God's power working, even though his prophet's corpse may have, have uh, 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 encouraged the king as he anticipated the battles for the Arameans and yet rebuked him for his lack of faith. So in other words, it's, a, it's, a, it's in effect an echo of Elisha's counsel to the king as he gets confronted with the fact that Elisha was a man of God and here's a demonstration of it. Well, let's move on. Verse 22, Haziel, the king of Assyria, or I mean, king of Syria, or Aramea, actually, oppressed Israel all the days of Joaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. His patience will run out before he's through the, the, the northern kingdom. But so far, he's still trying to, to, to uh, do it. And it's, by the way, it's God's promise, not their goodness, that uh, moves him to be merciful, as the, as the uh, writer you know, annotates here in the, in the verse. Verse 24, And Hezael, the king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead, and Joash, the son of Jehoah, Jehoah, Jehoahaz, 
took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoshaphat's father by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recover the cities of Israel. So he recovered in three battles, but he could have done better, that's the point. Because um, that was prophesied by Elijah back in verse 19 that he would, uh, uh, that he would defeat him three times. And uh, the battle of Aphek, which is mentioned in verse 17, might have been one of these three battles, we're not sure. But he, uh, Joash uh, didn't recapture the Israelite tones that Jehoahaz had lost in the battle of Hazael in his earlier three encounters. And so ends this session. A lot of lessons here. You know, we, we go through these stories, and this narrative seems so distant, because it was different times, ancient Israel, different political context. And we need to think, as we go home tonight, what do we really learn about the nature of God through all this? I think we learn again and again and again, from cover to cover, that God means what He says and says what He means. And God expects us to take Him at His word. When we don't take Him at His word, He gets angry. He gets angry. And He's most frustrated by those to whom he's given the most. He doesn't get frustrated when the the Aramaeans or the Moabites aren't faithful. They're pagans. But he gets really upset when his own people that are called by his name ignore him, don't do what he says, or give him at best intellectual assent and, and, and don't apply what he said to their behavior. And um, as we go through these uh, these episodes, it, it, this this issue with um, the arrows really bothers me. As I was preparing for this, I got to think about that. I wonder how often we shortchange ourselves by not accepting God's blessings through our unbelief. God invited through His prophet them to take advantage. He could shoot as many arrows, he'd give them that many victories. To a king, that's what it's all about. Are there promises in the Bible that we don't take advantage of? We make up our little cards, we memorize them, we go through our little thing. Do we really believe it? Do we appropriate it to ourselves? Um, there's all kinds of examples. I can freely talk about this one because we're not in a church where... Uh, well, it's easy. It's easy to speak as a guest speaker on this topic. And that's this whole issue of tithing. In Malachi chapter three, there's the most incredible challenge by God. God dares you to put him to the test. Well, that's a weird thing for God of the universe to do—to put himself in a box. But God delights in making, keeping promises, and and He delights. You know, see if I will not open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Have we really taken advantage of that? Do we believe it? Do we? Read it? And if we do, do we do we do that? And and uh, every time a pastor speaks on that, you know, it's always sensitive. He's asking for money. No, you you, you can tithe to wherever you you, you know you, you, the Lord leads you to that. That's another whole skill is to understand the spiritual led giving. But the idea is really main point is to put shoe leather to your faith. And all through the Scripture, Romans eight twenty eight, that. Uh, we know that all things work together for good, them that are love God, them who are the called according to his purpose. The most important three words in that passage are, and we know. Not believe or suspect, no. We know. 
What, that, that, that all things work together for good? Do we really believe that? Then why are we anxious? Is God in control or not? Do we really apply that? When we're ill or when we've been faced with some huge financial debacle or whatever, can we walk in faith? Do we really walk in faith? Do we really? God finds probably a new way every day to ask us, do you trust me? And that's sort of, that, see, that's what I really see uh, that God was doing to the king through Elijah. Elisha, I mean, with the arrows. He fired. He fired a few of them. Not realizing that as many as he would have fired, that would have been his blessing. There are promises equivalent to those all through the Scripture. Boy, if we're smart, we make a list of those. Go through and pick your favorite promises. Make a little card file. Cherish them. Refresh them. Claim them. I think God means what he says and says what he means. God must be really frustrated with us. You know, if you realize how much he's given us, how much revelation, the whole book, we, we can look ahead and see what happened later, and we can tie this all together, it's all there. And it's not just a narrative, it's God's word. Do we really make it a guide for our lives? Does it shape more than just our intellectual ascent? Well, sure, I believe in Genesis 1, yeah, okay. Are you saved? Yeah, I'm, I'm saved. Great. What have you done with it? You know. No, I think as we go through, um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about we're going through we're going through the historical books here, First Kings, Second Kings, and uh, I found myself sort of wishing for a change in diet. I wish we were jumping into one of the epistles, you know, because they're so rich. And I sort of was stopped in my tracks. These historical books are just, well, we'll say I was just, but they're certainly rich. And and what we're trying to do, of course, is go through it expositionally, because we don't want to get bogged down and make a 20-volume set on Second Kings, you know, trying to go keep a keep a pace so it, it keeps moving on the one hand. But uh, we, so we haven't spent a lot of time on what people call homiletics or application of these things. And I'm, 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 I happen to be a great believer that the Holy Spirit will apply it to your lives better than I could if you just let him. So we really try to consider ourselves expositors rather than, you know, Preachers as such, but um, these books, uh, uh, First, Second Kings, and the Chronicles, so is the history of God's own nation, and through their failures, that's where we learn. Have you ever been part of a sports team? You don't learn anything when you've won the game. It's in the locker room after the game when you've been beat that you re-examine your plays and figure out your weaknesses and change the lineup and whatever. There have been some fascinating studies in group dynamics is that, that winning teams generally are so busy patting themselves on the back, they don't, they don't really get self-critical. But when you've had a setback, that's when you learn. If you like to play chess, you never play someone you can beat all the time. You can't, your game will deteriorate. You always play people that can beat you all the time. Why? Because your game will improve. And it's true of any, anything like that. So you, you want to be challenged, and you get challenged through, through, through that kind of thing. Well, the same, I think spiritually the same thing. That's probably why God keeps us in trouble so much. It's the only time He hears from us. So, so as we go, we're going at a pretty clip here. We're halfway through the book of Second Kings, and that's as it should be because we don't want to make a career of Second Kings on the one hand. On the other hand, as we go through... Uh, and you review your notes, 
Don't fail to include in your notes questions about what does this mean for you. What, it, write down the so what questions. So what does this mean to me? What are those arrows of Elisha's arrows? How does that apply to you and me? Um, and so, you, you get it. let's uh, stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the history of the southern kingdom as we learn more of the heritage of David's line and as we ourselves embrace the son, the ultimate son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that record, Father, and its lessons. But, fathers, we turn to the northern kingdom and we see its apostasy and we see its idolatry and we see its presumption and ingratitude and its... Uh, resilience to any counsel, any godly counsel. We we tremble, Father, as we begin to realize that that's our nation too, Father. A proud heritage that we too have forsaken. And uh, you've sent your wake-up calls, Father, and we don't listen. So, Father, we we would ask that you would help us to learn from the lessons of the northern kingdom because they failed and they ultimately were wiped out because of that failure. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what it is you'd have of us in these days. Faithfulness and obedience and commitment to your heart, Father. Not not just our own schemes and dreams. We do pray, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of our lives, that we might hear you, that we might put out of the way those things which impede our ability to hear you. Help us, Father, to understand where we are. Help us to understand what you would have of us in repair. Help us, Father, to have a revival in this country and let it begin with each of us as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, the ultimate Son of David, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.